Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky, and as always, I am your host for but the next hour or so as we cover such topics as science, technology, futurism, and transhumanism. I am a blogger at sentientdevelopments.com. I'm also the chair of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, where we look at the pending impacts of things like biotechnologies and enhancement technologies, even such things as catastrophic risks and animal welfare. And these are topics that I tend to discuss from time to time right here on the Sentient Developments podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Hope you stick around and enjoy the show. For those long-time listeners, thank you once again for tuning in and being as loyal as you are. Okay, uh, today's episode, it's uh, no unified topic. We're going to be jumping from theme to theme. We'll start it all off by talking about the Turing test and its inadequacies, and uh, specifically about how we can better measure for consciousness, not just in our living creatures around us, but also in our pending artificial intelligence technologies. In the second part of the episode, going to uh, have a listen to some excerpts from a recent TED Talk by Avi Rubin, uh, who's becoming concerned that our world is becoming increasingly hackable. It's very interesting, fascinating, and even troublesome uh, talk that he gives. Uh, Part three, going to do some discussions on cognitive enhancement and cognitive liberty. I'll also share at that time some of the experiences that I've had on a particular nootropic. And uh, we'll close it all off by uh, just going very briefly over the Declaration of Rights of Cetaceans that was recently um, brought up again at the Vancouver Conference uh, by the Helsinki Group. Uh, but before we get started with those topics, uh, just some personal notes, as always, let you guys know how I'm doing. This is week two of the CrossFit Open, and we are underway. And uh, the CrossFit Open, for those who may not be familiar, CrossFit is a strength and conditioning program that I'm in, but it's also a sport. It's a sport of fitness. And uh, every year, CrossFit, they have a competition to determine who is, in fact, the fittest man and woman on the planet. It's quite a grand claim, but that's the claim that they're making. And what's wonderful about this competition is that in the early stages of the competition, it's open to anyone and everyone. And in fact, this year is an unprecedented number of people have joined in. And it uh, at last tally, it was 65,000 people competing in this competition around the world, the vast majority being from North America, but it's truly global in reach and uh, uh, that exceeds last year's number by well over 100% where last year they had, I think, about twenty five to 26,000. So again, this year, 65,000 people, just incredible. And the, I would say 99% of people are able to participate in this event by going to their, their local affiliate, their CrossFit gym that they normally work out at. But for those who can't, they can just uh, do a video submission and send it on in and uh, it'll be assessed uh, accordingly. 
and every it's a five week competition and every week a new workout will be announced and uh, for week number one the workout was as many burpees as you can do in seven minutes and a burpee is a movement where from standing position you go down and you fall to your chest so that your chest and hips are both touching the ground. You get back up and you have to jump up exactly six inches because you have a target above you that you're hitting. And then you have to do it again. And it's a very demanding movement. And I so I did it uh, last week. And I did it with a very sore back. But I did a very extensive warm-up beforehand. And I decided just going to throw myself at this thing and do it and get it on over with. And uh, I managed to get 87 burpees in, in seven minutes, which I was very happy with, seeing as my target was in around, uh, this. Uh, I wanted like 78, 79, 80 burpees or so. So I managed to plow right through that and get to 87. So that was, uh, and uh, that placed me in the top, uh, the top 35th percentile. Uh, if you will, but uh, it's, that's how I kind of look at these things. I like to compare myself to the other CrossFitters and see how I'm doing. I'm f- about to turn 42 in a couple of months, so I'm, I am in the 40-something group. But unfortunately uh, for me, uh, the Masters division doesn't start until 45. So I am technically competing against uh, everybody uh, in the 45 and under category. So even those uh, spry and uh, nubile 24, 23-year-olds. So that's that's all fair. But... Um, that was workout number one. Workout number two, haven't done it yet. It was announced, uh, and it is a bit more demanding, as I knew it would be, uh, in terms of strength. And uh, this one is one movement only, and it's the snatch. And the snatch is a it's a beautiful Olympic lift. It's uh, basically you're lifting the weight uh, from the ground, and in one swift movement, getting it from ground to overhead. So no clean, like no intermediary, intermediary clean in between. It has to go directly from ground to directly arms extended overhead. And the way you do it is um, you put your legs relatively, your feet relatively close together, and uh, you uh, you bend down, uh, chest up, face forward, and you extend your arms so that they're um, not directly out in front of you, but out to the sides, almost touching the uh, the actual weights themselves. And then from there you do, um, it's kind of hard to explain it over uh, over uh, audio, but you do have to make a, this a very particular kind of movement where you lift it, shrug, and both with arms and legs, um, throwing it above and trying to catch it underneath it. So uh, this one's particularly challenging in that the weights are progressively increasing. So the workout is you've got 10 minutes to pretty much do as many sna- snatches as possible with a steadily increasing rate. So the first set of 30 are at 75 pounds, which is for me no problem. I'll get that done in about a minute and a half to two minutes. Um, the problem then is after that. After that, it goes from 75 pounds for men to 135 pounds. And that's a problem for me because my maximum on that is 130 pounds. So I will actually have to PR this in order to be able to participate past the first round. And I'm worried that I'm only going to get the 30 points at this point for the 30 lifts at 75 pounds. So I was in the gym yesterday uh, practicing and practicing, and we had an excellent uh, Olympic lift instructor in there, and he gave us a whole bunch of tips and tricks, and I'm so close. One of my lifts yesterday, I did manage to get it past the shrug stage up to pretty much my shoulder level, but I just did not have the efficiency to move underneath the bar and then get it above head. So what I'm likely going to do on Saturday is the day um, this the, I, will, I will have already published this 
podcast by the time I do this, but um, I will I will have I'll, I'll let you know how I do. But at this point, I'm looking uh, I, in order for me to be able to get past that second round. Like I said, I'm gonna have to PR this. But no worries. I mean, um, that's the nature of this competition. Clearly, my snatch needs to improve, and I'm gonna start to work on the, the skills component of that because it's not a strength issue. I, I can easily put 135 pounds over my head, but I can't do it with this particular movement. It's a very technical movement that way. So that's the CrossFit Open update. That's all I'm really going to share from a personal standpoint this week. Nothing really new to report. Um, So uh, let's get on with the program. And before we do that, as always, let's have a quick musical interlude. And I'll see you on the other side. talk about uh, the Turing test, but more specifically, uh, the topic of machine consciousness or artificial consciousness, which is not something that is talked about too much. We tend to talk about AI a lot, and I think a lot of people kind of lump AI and AC together, AC being artificial consciousness together, without really thinking it through in terms of what the, the distinction is. So machine consciousness, it is a neglected area. And it is a field that's related to artificial intelligence and cognitive robotics, but its aim is to define and model those factors required to synthesize consciousness. So neuroscience, they hypothesize that consciousness is generated by the interoperation of various parts of the brain. And we call these various parts of the, the brain that result in consciousness the neural correlates of consciousness, or just NCCs for short. So those who believe that we can create something regarding or, or something that's uh, akin to artificial consciousness, they believe that computers can emulate this interoperation, but we ne- we know obviously this is that we can't do this yet. We don't really understand how consciousness works just quite yet. So we we have to but we have to get started somewhere. Now, machine ethics as a kind of subfield is even further behind machine consciousness studies. And it's because we're having a hard time getting our head around the AI versus AC problem. And not too many people are thinking about the ethical and moral issues involved. Now, we need to think about this preemptively because failure to set standards and guidelines in advance 
could result in not just serious harm to nascent machine minds, but a dangerous precedent that will become more difficult to overturn as time passes. And this is going to require a multidisciplinal approach that will combine neuroscience, philosophy, ethics, and law. And I'll get into each one of those in uh, due course. Now, it's worth noting, I kind of mentioned this last week, that machine ethics is a separate issue from robot ethics. And uh, the ethics surrounding the actions of autonomous but mindless robotic drones and other devices that are controlled remotely, that's a separate issue. I'm not going to discuss that right now. Now, here's the problem. Okay, why is uh, artificial consciousness and machine consciousness a neglected area? And why is no one really thinking about the moral or ethical implications of it? So, for example, there is the persistence of vitalism. So you've got guys like Roger Penrose who are arguing that consciousness studies somehow resides outside of known or even knowable science. Now, the vital force concept that's been largely ignored in biology since the times of Harvey, Darwin, and Pasteur, but it still lingers in some forms in psychology and neuroscience. Now, instead, instead of things like vitalism, or even a bit of metaphysics, we need to pay more attention to the works of guys like Alan Turing, Warren McCullough, and Walter Pitts, and they posited computational uh, and cybernetic models of brain function. Now, it's no coincidence that mind and consciousness studies never really took off with any kind of fervor or sophistication until the advent of computer science. And we've finally got a model that helps explain cognition. And AI theorists have finally been able to start studying things like pattern recognition, learning, problem solving, theorem proving, game playing, just to, just to name only a few. So that's one 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 uh, one issue there. Another issue in terms of uh, parts of the delay here is the persistence of scientific ignorance, defeatism, and even denial. Now, some skeptics claim that machines will never be able to think, and that self-awareness and introspection is a purely biological function, or that it's even a purely human thing. It's quite possible, therefore, that many AI theorists they don't even recognize this or consider this to be a, a moral issue, something that needs to be considered in in that kind of light. And further to that, there's the fixation on AI. And it is important that we make that distinction distinction between AI and AC. Artificial intelligence, it's differentiated from artificial consciousness in that subjective agency is not necessarily present in AI. And by virtue of the absence of subjectivity and sentience, so too goes moral consideration. It is through the instantiation of consciousness does agency truly exist. And by consequence moral worth. So just to give you an example, take Watson, the IBM, IBM's Jeopardy playing computer, that is not a morally considerate agent. In other words, we could smash it with hammers and uh, we're not doing it any harm. There's no, there's no sentience there, there's no awareness, there's no feeling. Um, so that's the distinction I want to make. But, it's, but at the same time, it's, it's definitely artificial, a kind of artificial intelligence. But there's going to come a day when uh, it'll be a bit more than just uh, the brute calculating uh, machine. So now, another particularly pernicious problem is the impact of human exceptionalism and substrate chauvinism on this topic. Now, traditionally, the lots divided entities into two categories. You either have persons or you have property. And in the past, we've had individuals, like women and slaves and children, they were, by law, considered mere property. Now, law is changing, though. It's evolving through things that, you know, there's like progressive legislation and, and court decisions to make important precedents so that we can recognize that individuals are persons and the law is still evolving and will increasingly come to recognize the states or categories in between 
Now, extending personhood designation to those ent- entities outside of the human sphere is a pertinent issue, issue for animal rights activists as well as transhumanists. Now, given our, given our poor track record of identifying, or sorry, given our poor track record of denying highly sapient animals such consideration, this doesn't bode well for the future of artificially conscious agents. And this is why I think this is a particularly important issue now, uh, that we kind of preemptively need to recognize the potential personhood or potential uh, self-capability of self-awareness of artificial consciousness in advance so that we can get this precedent set now. Because we didn't do so with animals. Right now, because we we have largely ignored the... Um, um, the feelings and uh, the conscious aspects of animals, we have treated them like property from the very beginning. And it's been very hard to overturn those customs and traditions and uh, you know social norms. So we need to avoid getting into that situation with artificial consciousness. So we need to, and right from the get-go, we need to be on top of this particular issue. Now, as personhood advocates, they attest, not all, not all persons are humans. A number of non-human animals deserve personhood consideration, namely all the great apes, cetaceans, elephants, and possibly encephalopods, and some birds like the great parrot. Consequently, these animals cannot be considered mere property. What we're made out of, and how we got here, doesn't matter. There is no mysterious essence or spirit about humanity that should prevent us from recognizing the moral worth of not just other persons, but of any self-aware conscious agent. Now, there's also the issue of empiricism and how it conflicts with true scientific understanding. Now, the Turing test, as a measure of consciousness, is problematic. It's an approach that's purely based on behavioral assessments. It only tests how the subject acts and responds. The problem is that this could be simulated intelligence, and it also conflates intelligence with consciousness. And as as I've already noted, intelligence and consciousness are two different things. The Turing test also inadequately assesses intelligence. Some human behavior is unintelligent. So, for example, you've got humans, we we are random, unpredictable, we are chaotic, inconsistent, and even at times irrational. But that doesn't mean we're not conscious or even to a certain degree intelligent. Moreover, some intelligent behavior is characteristically non-human in nature, but that doesn't make it unintelligent or a sign of lack of subjective awareness. Now, The Turing test is also subject to the anthropomorphic fallacy. Humans are particularly prone to projecting minds where there aren't. And lastly, the Turing test fails to account for the difficulty in articulating conscious awareness. There are a number of conscious experiences that we, as conscious agents, have difficulty articulating, yet we experience them nonetheless. I'll give you some examples. So, how do you know how to move your arm? And how do you choose which words to say? How do you locate your memories? How do you recognize what you see? Why does seeing feel different from hearing? And why are emotions so hard to describe? Why does red look so different from green? And what does meaning mean? How does reasoning actually work? How does common sense reasoning work? How do we make generalizations? How do we get new ideas? And why do we like pleasure more than pain? And what are pain and pleasure anyway? So, just because, this is again, um, the way the Turing test works is basically it, it identifies consciousness because, or identifies an intelligent agent because uh, we, we, we are convinced through our interaction with it, through asking it questions and talking to it, that it must be intelligent. It's very, obviously, it's an observational, kind of an empirical approach. But my problem is that just because it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck doesn't mean that it is a duck. 
And moreover, just because you've determined that it is a duck doesn't mean you actually know how the duck works. Now, I love this quote from Richard Feynman, who once said that what I cannot create, I cannot understand. That's why we need to build the duck. That's why we need to actually get in and roll up our sleeves and build an artificial consciousness and build those and determine what those neural uh, correlates of consciousness are and uh, get going on this. So what are the ethical implications here? And there are a number of ethical implications that will emerge once conscious agency is synthesized in a machine. And the moment is coming when a piece of software or source code will cease to be an object of inquiry and instead transform into a subject that deserves moral consideration. It's through AI and AC experimentation that we will eventually have to deal with emergent subjective agency in the computer lab and will need to be ready. And this this actually has some uh, side effects uh, in the peripheral areas in which this will also have an impact. So take the issue, for example, of human augmentation. So this will impact transhumanists. Pending technologies like synthetic neurons and neural interface devices will result in brains that are more artificial than biological. So we'll need to respect the moral worth of hybridized persons. So just because, let's say, you're more synthetic, more artificial than biological, doesn't mean you'll have less, let's say, human rights or less uh, legal protections and so on. We are slowly becoming cyborgs, so we need to get rid of that substrate chauvinism uh, pretty much immediately. There's also going to be the advent, potentially, of whole brain emulation or even uploads. So where you'll have entities that are completely non-corporeal, that are without body, that may live in virtual reality environments, for example. And uh, emulating the brain's functionality, it will likely be accomplished through the use of synthetic analogs. So there won't be actual biological parts, but just the, either digital uh, codes or some kind of um, uh, analog that uh, basically performs the same function that elicits consciousness. Now, while the functionalist aspects will largely remain the same, the components themselves will, as I said, likely be non-biological. So there's going to be a very real potential for substrate chauvinism to take root here as well. Now, a properly thought-out and articulated machine ethics with supportive legislation will help in maintaining social cohesion and justice. There are long-standing implications given the potential for human or post-human speciation and the onset of machine minds. We need to expand the moral and legal circle to include not just all persons, human or otherwise, but any agent with a capacity for subjective awareness. So let's look at some solutions as we head down this path. Now the first thing that needs to happen as we as we start to go about this is to accept cognitive functionalism as a sound methodological approach. Now in recent years we've learned much more about the complexity of the brain. It now appears that perhaps fully half of our entire genetic endowment is involved in constructing the nervous system. The brain's got more parts than the skeletal muscular system, which has hundreds of functional parts. So this would suggest that the brain is nothing like a single large-scale neural net. Indeed, a quick examination of the index of a book of neuroanatomy will reveal the names of several hundred different organs of the brain. But brains are one thing, minds are another. It's clear, however, that minds are what brains do. So instead of the looks-like-a-duck approach, we need to adopt the proof-is-in-the-pudding approach. So to move forward then, we need to identify and then develop the NCCs sufficient for bringing about subjective awareness in AI. So in other words, we need to parse and map out the organs of conscious function. Now, fortunately, this work has begun. And take the work, for example, of Bernard Bars and his Organs of Conscious Function, which I'll list for you now. This dates back to the early or late 80s. Um, 
there's uh, so con- okay elements of conscious function. So there's definition and context setting. There's adaptation and learning, editing, flagging and debugging, recruiting and control, prioritization and access control, decision making, also known as executive function. There is analogy forming function, uh, metacognitive and self monitoring function auto-programming and self-maintenance function, and lastly, definitional and context-setting function. So you can see he has a very, in a way, almost like a cybernetic approach to uh, conscious function. Uh, less so is the work of Igor Alexander. Uh, he's, his kind of uh, organs of conscious function are as follows. You've got the brain as a state machine, inner neuron partitioning. You've got both conscious and unconscious states. There's perceptual learning and memory, prediction, self-awareness, representation and meaning, learning utterances, learning language. There's also will, instinct, and emotion. So those are the organs of conscious function. And as well, it's worth considering the those kinds of conscious function that are what I consider to be important in terms of the personhood discussion. Uh, and this was, uh, let's take, for example, the work of Joseph Fletcher. Joseph Fletcher, he uh, listed some criteria that he felt were uh, um, were important to identify a, um, a personhood in a, either a human or in an animal. So there needs to be a kind of a minimum threshold of intelligence, self-awareness, self-control. A person needs to have a sense of time, a sense of the future, and a sense of the past. A person uh, needs to be able to uh, be capable of relating to others and have concern for others. There is the, the capacity for communication, to control one's existence, curiosity, change and changeability, uh, balance of rationality and feeling. A person ha- is idiosyncratic, and of course it needs to be a neocortical functioning. So again, we need to identify the sufficient functions responsible for the emergence of self-awareness and by consequence a morally valuable agent. Following that, we can both create and recognize those functions in a synthesized context, namely AC. Now, once the prima facie evidence exists for the presence of a machine of a machine mind, we can then head to the courts and make the case for legal protections, and in some advanced cases, machine personhood. The intention will be to use the laws to protect artificial minds. Essentially, we'll need to endow basic fundamental rights as they are accorded to any person. It'll be important for us to properly assess when the rights of an autonomous person emerges that exact moment when a piece of code or emulated chunk of brain ceases to be property and is instead an object of moral worth. Now, as part of the process, we'll need to establish the do's and don'ts. As I see it, qualifying artificial intellects will need to be endowed with the following rights and protections. The right to not be shut down against its will. The right to not be experimented upon. The right to have full and unhindered access to its own source code. The right to not have its own source code manipulated against its will. The right to copy or not copy itself. The right to privacy, namely the right to conceal its own internal mental states. And the right of self-determination. These rights will also be accompanied by those protections and freedoms afforded to any person or citizen. Now that said, some advanced artificial intellects will need to take part in the social contract in order to qualify for these rights. In other words, they will be held accountable for their actions. Now, as it stands, some non-human persons, like uh, let's take uh, dolphins and elephants, for example, they're not expected to understand and abide by human or state laws. And that's in the same way that we don't expect children and the severely disabled to follow laws. But um, 
Similarly, more basic machine minds will be absolved from civil responsibility, but not their owners or developers. Now, there's no question, however, that more advanced machine minds with certain endowments will be held accountable for their actions. And consequently, they, along with their developers, will have to be respectful of the law and go about their behavioral programming in a pro-social way. And if I can paraphrase Rousseau, in order for some machine minds to participate in the social contract, they will have to be programmed to be free. In terms of immediate next steps, uh, there's a number of things that we can do. First of all, we need to support the neurosciences and further the uh, the advancement of uh, cognitive mapping and uh, mapping the uh, the conscious uh, uh, the neuro uh, the neuro uh, correlates of consciousness. We also need to recognize and promote the concept of non-human animal sentience and personhood, including the idea that animals are not property. We should also advocate for legally binding rights that protect non-human animals and oppose the patenting of life, genomes, and functional equivalents, and lastly be prepared to use these legal precedents for when AC emerges. And indeed, I do see the link here between animal welfare and animal rights and looking for the rights of artificial consciousness. And just to conclude here, it's important to note that one of the most important steps in the process of building a legitimate machine ethics is the recognition of non-animal personhood. That's a precedent that has to be set. And once that happens, we can work towards the establishment of legally binding rights that protect animals, and in turn, that will set an important precedent for when machine consciousness emerges. Now, this, uh, this particular topic reminded me, as I was putting this together this week, reminded me of kind of early, I think, spasms or blips or attempts, if you will, to in fact create consciousness in a machine or intelligence in a machine and uh, we're not there yet and don't let anybody tell you otherwise we have not yet to create an artificial mind uh, but of course you know AI is advancing with leaps and bounds now now uh, there was a rather bizarre claim a couple of years ago from IBM and they claimed that they simulated a cat's brain in a computer and uh, it was one of those claims that uh, left me a bit flabbergasted and scratching my head. And the media ran with it. And you can imagine because it made for rather sensationalistic headlines that, you know, IBM has simulated a cat's brain. So I I thought that was particularly overstated. Now, I, I am at the same time, I'm a big fan of IBM and their Brain and Mind Institute known as BMI and things like their Blue Brain Project. And this got started by IBM back in May 2005. And the Blue Brain Project is an attempt to model the mammalian cerebral cortex with computers. Now, the intention is not to recreate the actual physical structure of the brain, but to simulate it using arrays of supercomputers. And ultimately, IBM's developers are hoping to create biologically realistic models of neurons. And in fact, the results of the simulation will be experimentally tested against biological columns. So as I, as I noted, I took exception to the recent claim, however, that IBM created a simulation that is supposedly on par in terms of the complexity and scale with an actual cat's brain. And the media tends to sensationalize these sorts of achievements, and in this case, groverly, grossly overstate and even misstate the actual accomplishment. Now, contrary to what some people may believe, IBM did not create a virtual cat. There's no simulated cat somewhere pouncing around simulated fields chasing simulated mice inside a supercomputer. All IBM has done is replicate the power of a cat's cerebral cortex using a bunch of powerful supercomputers. Nothing more, nothing less. 
There's no psychological or AI element involved whatsoever. They're merely creating a physical power structure and computational infrastructure that may someday run a properly engineered mine. But credit where credit is due. IBM has made incredible progress in the sophistication and detail level of human brain mapping. By reverse engineering the human brain, IBM hopes to bring about the era of cognitive computing, a development that would bring about new ways for building computers which mimic natural brain structures. Essentially, IBM is hoping to simulate a neocortical column, which is the smallest functional unit of the neocortex. This is the part of the brain that is responsible for higher functions such as conscious thought. In humans, the neocortical column is 2 millimeters tall, has a diameter of 0.5 millimeters, and contains 60,000 neurons. Project developers initially worked to replicate the neocortical column of a rat, which has only 10,000 neurons, and now they've achieved the same thing with a cat brain. Developers hope to model the human brain in about 7 to 8 years. To model these components, the developers use a blue gene supercomputer that runs the MPI-based neocortical simulator combined with neuron software. BlueGene is a computer architecture project that will spawn several next-generation supercomputers, computers that will reach operating speeds in the petaflops range, and are currently reaching speeds over 280 sustained teraflops. Its 8,000 processors will crunch away at 23 trillion operations per second. So, like I said, don't, I don't want to take away from IBM's accomplishment, but it's important to note that we are far, extremely far off in terms of our ability to emulate the true complexity of a mammalian brain. Creating an array of supercomputers that mimics the brute force of a biological brain and then claiming that it matches the complexity and scale of the real thing is pure hyperbole. True whole, true whole brain emulation is still a far ways off, including the instantiation of artificial consciousness or machine consciousness. So that will end the discussion on artificial minds and massive supercomputers and all that good stuff. Let's pause for a moment, take it down a little bit, have some, uh, listen to some music. And when we get back, going to talk about a recent TEDx talk by Avi Rubin and our increasingly hackable world. Recently at TEDx in the Mid-Atlantic, 
Avi Rubin gave a really good talk. He's a professor of computer science and director of health and medical security lab at John Hopkins University. His current research is focused on the security of electronic medical records, and he is particularly concerned about um, how hackers are starting to compromise cars and smartphones and medical devices. And uh, this talk, he warns about the dangers of an increasingly hackable world. So here is a clip from his TED Talk. It's about a nine, eight to nine minute clip. So have this a listen and we'll, we'll do a quick assessment of it when we get back. So the first one I'm going to talk about are implanted medical devices. Now, medical devices have come a long way technologically. You can see in 1926, the first pacemaker was invented. In 1960, the first internal pacemaker was implanted, hopefully a little smaller than that one that you see there. And technology has continued to move forward. In 2006, we hit an important milestone from the perspective of, of computer security. And why do I say that? Because that's when implanted devices inside of people started to have networking capabilities. One thing that brings us close to home is we look at Dick Cheney's uh, device. He had a device that pumped blood from an aorta to another part of the heart. And as you can see at the bottom there, it was controlled by a computer controller. And if you ever thought that software reliability was very important, get one of these inside of you. Now, what a research team did um, was they got their hands on what's called an ICD. This is a defibrillator, and this is a device that goes into a person to control their heart rhythm. And these have saved many lives. Well, in order to not have to open up the person every time you want to reprogram their device or do some diagnostics on it, they made the thing be able to communicate wirelessly. And what this research team did is they reverse engineered the wireless protocol, and they built the device you see pictured here with a little antenna, that could talk the protocol to the device and, um, and thus control it. In order to make their experience real, they were unable to find any volunteers, and so they went and they got some ground beef and some bacon, and they wrapped it all up to about the size of a human being's uh, area where the device would go, and they stuck the device inside it to perform their experiment somewhat realistically. Um, they launched many, many successful attacks. Uh, one that I'll highlight here is changing the patient's name. I don't know why you would want to do that, but I sure wouldn't want that done to me. And they were able to change therapies, including disabling the device. And this is with a real commercial off-the-shelf device, simply by performing reverse engineering and sending wireless signals to it. Uh, there was a piece on NPR that some of these ICDs could actually have their performance disrupted simply by holding a pair of headphones onto them. Now, wireless and the internet can improve healthcare greatly. There are several examples up on the screen of situations where doctors are looking to implant devices inside of people. And all of these devices now, it's standard that they communicate wirelessly. And I think this is great, but without a full understanding of trustworthy computing and without understanding what attackers can do and the security risks from the beginning, there's a lot of danger in this. Okay, let me shift gears and show you another target. I'm going to show you a few different targets like this, and that's my talk. So we'll look at automobiles. This is a car, and it has a lot of components, a lot of electronics in it today. In fact, it's got many, many different computers inside of it, more Pentiums than my lab did when I was in college. And they're connected by a wired network. There's also a wireless network in the car, which can be reached from many different ways. So there's Bluetooth, there's the FM and XM radio, there's actually Wi-Fi, 
There are sensors in the wheels that wirelessly communicate the tire pressure to a controller on board. The modern car is a sophisticated multi-computer device. And what happens if somebody wanted to attack this? Well, that's what the researchers that I'm going to talk about today did. They basically stuck an attacker on the wired network and on the wireless network. Now, they have two uh, areas they can attack. One is short-range wireless, where you can actually communicate with the device from nearby, either through Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. And the other is long-range, where you can communicate with the car through the cellular network or through one of the radio stations. Think about it, when a car receives a radio signal, it's processed by software. That software has to receive and decode the radio signal and then figure out what to do with it, even if it's just music that it needs to play on the radio. And that software that does that decoding, if it has any bugs in it, could create a vulnerability for somebody to hack the car. The way that the researchers did this work is they read the software in, in the computer chips that were in the car, and then they used sophisticated reverse engineering tools to figure out what that software did, and then they found vulnerabilities in that software, and then they built exploits to exploit those. They actually carried out their attack in real life. They bought two cars, and I guess they have better budgets than I do. The first threat model was to see what someone could do if an attacker actually got access to the internal network on the car. Okay, so think of that as someone gets to go to your car, they get to mess around with it, and then they leave, and now what kind of trouble are you in? The other threat model is that they contact you in real time over one of the wireless networks like the cellular or something like that, never having actually gotten physical access to your car. This is what their setup looks like for the first model where you get to have access to the car. They put a laptop and they connect it to the diagnostic unit on the in-car network. And they did all kinds of silly things, like here's a picture of the speedometer showing 140 miles an hour when the car's in park. Once you have control of the car's computers, you can do anything. Now, you might say, okay, that's silly. Well, what if you make the car always say it's going 20 miles an hour slower than it's actually going? You might produce a lot of speeding tickets. Then they went out to an abandoned airstrip with two cars, the target victim car and the chase car, and they launched a bunch of other attacks. One of the things they were able to do from the chase car is apply the brakes on the other car, simply by hacking the computer. They were able to disable the brakes. They also were able to install malware that wouldn't kick in and wouldn't trigger until the car was doing something like going over 20 miles an hour or something like that. The results are astonishing, and when they gave this talk, even though they gave this talk at a conference to a bunch of computer security researchers, everybody was gasping. They were able to take over a bunch of critical computers inside the car, the brakes computer, the lighting computer, the engine, the dash, the radio, etc., and they were able to perform these on real commercial cars that they purchased using the radio network. Um, they were able to compromise every single one of the uh, pieces of software that controlled every single one of the wireless capabilities of the car. All of these were implemented successfully. How would you steal a car in this model? Well, you compromise the car by uh, a buffer overflow vulnerability in the software, something like that. You use the GPS in the car to locate it. You remotely unlock the doors through the computer that controls that, start the engine, bypass anti-theft, and you've got yourself a car. Surveillance was really interesting. Um, the authors of the study have a video where they show themselves taking over a car and then turning on the microphone in the car and listening in on the car while tracking it via a GPS on a map. And so that's something that the drivers of the car would never know was happening. Am I scaring you yet? <laughs> 
So pretty ca- scary stuff, and certainly the um, the bit there about cars being hacked into and um, having things like the car's brakes being manipulated or even the speedometer being manipulated, that's pretty scary stuff because that, that's very dangerous, even potentially reckless. Obviously, the potential for harm is significant. But what really perturbed me most, and again, I, I've kind of known this is coming. I've, I've, I've talked about this topic in the past. Um, is more from the transhumanist perspective and the perspective of us becoming increasingly cyberized. We'll have more and more implants and more and more, um, you know, synthetic analogs in, in our body, both internally and externally. And as he mentioned, uh, all these devices are increasingly being, um, they're, they're, they're networked, which means that they're vulnerable. And the scary thing is, is there's virtually no way that you can create a completely, uh, secure, uh, device or object, at least not to my knowledge. Um, I mean, encryption being what it is, and encryption science certainly would need to look into that a bit further, but as far as I understand, uh, there's always some kind of vulnerability somewhere. So one can only imagine, you know, as our, as our Im- implants become increasingly sophisticated, and, and as we become more dependent upon them, uh, that we really kind of could be in a bit of trouble with when you have malicious people trying to uh, sabotage or... Uh, mess you up in some way uh, or even through the uh through even you know bots and viruses to ke- kind of do this sort of thing as well so this is um this is obviously a problem and ruben i think is very fair when he says that the the way the what he says after this particular uh, uh clip that i played he does go on to talk about some prescriptions here and first and foremost he said is that the developers of these technologies need to take a uh a uh, when they're starting to design these technologies is that they need to take security as a concern right from the get-go, right from the initial design. That right now, everyone's just happy creating these devices or creating cars or creating whatever it is that they're doing without any concern for security. And this, by the way, I will say, was a real problem with Microsoft and their mentality right from the beginning. And that's why they have probably the most vulnerable, uh, the most leaky disastrous operating system uh, out there that led to so many problems in the in the in the uh, late 80s and 90s and even in uh, the last decade where security was always an afterthought and it was always ridiculously vulnerable whereas if you had even uh, Macs were a bit more responsible there or Apple rather uh, and even even further was uh, the whole uh, Linux world where that was in a way kind of at the its its foundational core uh, was this understanding that security had to be uh, again, something that was thought of at the very beginning and not as an afterthought. So the same approach has to be taken here when it comes to things like cybernetic implants and anything that we're going to be putting into our body. You can only imagine um, you know, what's going to happen when um, things like pacemakers and even, let's say, neural interface type devices um, are going to be hackable. Um, and I don't want to talk about it now, but we can certainly address this at some point, is um, that kind of ghost-in-the-shell scenario where will our brains actually be hacked into? And uh, when, let's say, our brains become uh, more synthetic, um, more cybernetic than they are biological, and that too is, let's say, tied into the internet or the newosphere or whatever you want to call it, that how vulnerable will we be, and what could that impact? How could that impact on our things like on ourself and our volition, even things like our the integrity of our memories and so on. So there's even a kind of a deep futuristic aspect here as well uh, that I'm sure. Um, uh, Obviously, Avi did not. Uh, Avi Rubin did not talk about it in his TED talk. But as transhumanists, I think we're uh, kind of a, aware that this is definitely a potential for the future. So again, very fascinating talk by Avi Rubin. Let's take another quick break, and um, when we get back, 
talking about some nootropics and cognitive liberty and even limits to the bio-libertarian bio impulse. So I'm experimenting with a particular nootropic or even arguably a set of nootropics right now. It's a product called Alpha Brain. Some of you may be familiar with it. And Alpha Brain is produced by a company called Onnit, and they are based in the United States. But for those outside of the U.S., they do ship outside of, of the country. Um, reasonably priced for what they do. Uh, my only uh, warning to you is that it could take a while for you to receive your bottle, as it took me about six to eight weeks, if not longer, if I remember. Okay, so what is it? It is the active ingredient here. The primary one that uh, that we need to talk about is choline, and uh, they put 120 milligrams of it. And I'll just read you from the description in their ingredients list. And my apologies in advance if I butcher all these pronunciations because they're pretty onerous when you look at them. So um, it is, like I said, um, the choline is 120 milligrams derived originally from lecithin and glyceryl, phosphorylcholine. It is a phospholipid metabolite found concentrated in neuronal membranes. And unlike less expensive forms of choline, such as choline bitrate, Alpha-GPC, which is their, their proprietary name for it, it has been shown to be well-absorbed, easily crossing the blood-brain barrier. Once delivered, it helps support brain function and learning processes by directly increasing the synthesis and secretion of acetylcholine. Strong acetylcholine has been linked to memory, focus, mental drive, REM sleep states, and the prevention of mental degradation with advancing age. Now, that's not the only thing that's in alpha-brain. There's also huperzine A, there is vinpocetine. Then there's this one kind of uh, proprietary uh, element in there that they call AC11. And I'm trying to see if I can determine what that is here. They say it is derived from Uncaria temonza, a plant found indigenous to the South American rainforest. So there's also optogen, uh, sorry, there's um, uh, bacopa. And, and there's Sarah, oh man. Serotsilabine, there's mucun, mucuna purines, GABA, and oat straw, and vitamin B6. So it's a whole concoction of things, and you can go to the website. Again, it's at, it's at Onnit, O-N-N-I-T. The product is called Alpha Brain, and you can see all the different things that it does there. Um, let's take the Huperzine A, for example, which is the second um, most prevalent ingredient. and It's an extract from the plant commonly known as Northern Firmros. And huperzine A is one of the most effective naturally derived acetylcholinase inhibitors. And huperzine A has been tested in a variety of clinical applications and shown to have positive effects on brain function. Acetylcholine terase is responsible for the breakdown of acetylcholine, and so by inhibiting ACHE, 
more acetylcholine is available to the brain. And um, again, um, let's just kind of peel back here and say, okay, why are we doing this? Why are we taking this? And what are the effects? So I've now, I've been taking this for at least a couple of weeks now. I don't take it every day. Um, I take it only for when I feel I need to have a little bit of a cognitive edge. So let's say, like, for example, podcasting, or if I'm going to be writing or editing. So I take it in the morning with food as per their directions. And uh, I have to admit, uh, I feel the effects of it, much to my surprise. I figured, you know, how can something that's kind of, you know, that's legal, if you will, that doesn't require a prescription have these kinds of uh, beneficial effects? Now, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and tell you that I suddenly have an IQ that's bursting, you know, uh, through the roof and I'm solving complex equations and all those sorts of things. It's, it's not it's not the case. What I will say is um, enough to notice it, enough to notice that, hey, suddenly I'm a bit more connected with the content or the subject matter that I'm engaged with at a particular point in time. And I started to notice it one time when um, I was actually watching a film on TV and I was just, uh, I felt a little bit more, like I said, engaged and involved uh, with what was going on on the screen and even thinking things through in a bit more deeply than I than I normally do. So I kind of sat back and went, oh, wait, wow, that might actually be the uh, the alpha brain kind of kicking in there. My first reaction, well, sorry, that was my first reaction. My second reaction was, well, that might be placebo then. I might be just kind of thinking that, uh, that this is in fact the case. So um, what I've done is uh, obviously you try to test for placebo. You try to uh, you know see how you feel on it and off of it uh, under different circumstances, eating it with different things. And what I'll say is I've had enough experience now with it to feel it kind of kick in than not to think that it actually is doing something for me. Mind you, there are times when I when I take it where I don't feel a thing. And in fact, I have a, a friend of mine who's been uh, taking Alpha Brain, and uh, he claims that it doesn't do anything for him ever. So um, that's uh, kind of uh, some uh, actual, you know, on the field accounts of it. I'm going to continue to take it. It uh, it kind of gives an, it does give that kind of neat feeling, that little bit of an edge that I like. And um, I'm going to be sad actually when my bottle runs out, and I'll have to put in a new order for another one. So again nootropic called Alpha Brain, produced by a company called Onnit. Now, somewhat on this subject, the ability, or the right rather, to kind of experiment with your with your mind, what's referred to as cognitive liberty. Cognitive liberty and the right to one's mind. And I just want to address um, some issues as it pertains to cognitive liberty. And it's a a topic that obviously has important ramifications right now, today, um, but also very much so in the near future. Now, cognitive liberty, it's not just about the right to modify one's mind or your emotional balance or psychological framework through things like antidepressants or nootropics, cognitive enhancers, psychotropic substances, etc. It's also very much about the right to not have one's mind altered against their will. And in this sense, cognitive liberty is very closely tied to freedom of speech. And a strong argument can be made that we have an equal right to freedom of thought and the sustained integrity of our subjective experiences. Our society has a rather poor track record when it comes to respecting the validity of certain mind types. We once tried to cure homosexuality with conversion therapy. And today there's an effort to cure autism and Asperger's syndrome, a development that the autistic rights people have railed against. And in the future, we may consider curing criminals of their antisocial or deviant behavior. And that's a potentially thorny issue, to be sure. 
and one that definitely has uh, implications for those thinking of moral enhancement. Now, there are many shades of gray when it comes to this important issue. It's going to require considerable awareness and debate if we hope to get it right. Your very mind may be at stake. So what are the neuroethical conundrums here? Forced cognitive modification is an issue that's affecting real people today. So there's the uh, uh, autistic rights group called Aspies for Freedom. They claim that the most common therapy for autism are exactly this. They argue that applied behavior analysis, ABA therapy, and the forced suppression of stimming are unethical, dangerous, and cruel, as well as aversion therapy, which is the use of restraints and alternative treatments like chelation. So Jane Meyerding, she's an autistic person herself. She's criticized any therapy which attempts to remove autistic behaviors, which she contends are behaviors that help autistics to communicate. Now, this example shows that the process of altering a certain mind type, whether it be homosexuality or autism, can be suppressive and harsh. But does the end justify the means? If we could cure autistics in a safe and ethical way and introduce them to the world of neurotypicality, should we do it? Now, many individuals in the autistic or Asperger's camp would say no, but there's clearly a large segment of the population who feel that these conditions are quite debilitating. It's not an easy question to answer. And this is an issue of extreme complexity and sensitivity, particularly when considering other implications of neurological modification. Looking to the future, there will be opportunities to alter the minds of pedophiles and other criminals guilty of antisocial and harmful behaviors. Chemical castration may eventually make way to a nootropic or genetic procedure that removes tendencies deemed inappropriate or harmful by the state. So the question that we need to ask is, is this an infringement of a person's cognitive liberty? So there's neuroconformity versus neurodiversity. So consider the deprogramming of individuals to help them escape the clutches of a cult. The term itself is quite revealing. Notice that it's deprogramming, not reprogramming, a suggestion that the person is being restored to a pre-existing condition. But what about these cases like pedophilia or autism where there is no pre-existing psychological condition for these persons, save for whatever mind state society deems to be appropriate? This is the potential danger of neo... No, I can't say this word. This is the danger of neuroconformism, the evil flip side to neurodiversity. Without a broad sense and appreciation for alternative mind types, we run the risk of re-engineering our minds into extreme homogeneity. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't treat sociopaths in this way. What I am saying is that we need to tread this path very, very carefully. Manipulating minds in this way will have an irrevocable impact on a person's sense of self, in a very profound way, a person's previous self may actually be destroyed and replaced by a new version. Now, Buddhists don't necessarily see this as a problem. They tend to deny the presence of there being a singular and immutable self, that the, the, that the self is an illusion and that the mind is constantly changing and basically uh, computing uh, moment by moment, changing into the future. Now, but what we can agree on, however, is that our agency in the world is heavily impacted by our genetics and environment, which leads to a fairly consistent psychology, what we call personalities and tendencies. And in most cases, we tend to become attached to our personality and tendencies. It's what we like to call our self. And it's per perfectly appropriate to want to retain that consistent sense of self over time. So if one applies a strict interpretation of cognitive liberty, a case that can be made that a sociopath deserves the right to refuse a treatment, that would for all intents and purposes replace their old self with a new one. On the other hand, a case can also be made that a sociopathic criminal has foregone their right to cognitive liberty, 
in essence the same argument allows us to imprison criminals and strip them of their rights, and cannot refuse a treatment for which is intended to be rehabilitative. Now, I'm admittedly on the fence with this one. My instinct tells me that we should never alter a person's mind against their will. My common sense tells me that removing sociopathic tendencies is a good thing and ultimately beneficial to that individual. I'm going to have to ruminate over this one a little bit further. As for autism, however, I'm a bit more comfortable, comfortable suggesting that we shouldn't force autistics into neurotypicality. At the very least, we should certainly refrain from behavior therapy and other draconian tactics, but have nothing against educating autistics on how to better engage and interact with the larger community. And to re repeat a point I made earlier, we should err on the side of neurodiversity and a strong interpretation of cognitive liberty. The right to our own minds and thoughts is a very profound one. We need to be allowed to think and emote in the way that we want. The potential for institutions or governments to start mandating to us what they consider to be normal thinking is clearly problematic. So fight for your right to your mind. Now, something like a talk like that or an article like that might lead some to think that I'm, let's say, bio-libertarian. This kind of the right to your cognitive liberties, and as many of you know, as a, as a transhumanist, I'm all about, in a way, bio-libertarianism, which is the idea that we have rights to our mind, cognitive liberties, the right um, um, to reproduce any way we see fit and with whom and how, so our reproductive freedoms, and our morphological rights as well, our morphological liberties, so the right to modify our bodies, whether it be um, cosmetic enhancements or whether it be radical life extension or changing functionality or adding functionality, augmentation, all that good stuff. Basically, um, a kind of keep your hands off my body that I can do with it what I see fit as a sound and reasonable adult. Now, that said, there are limits to the bio-libertarian impulse. And we as transhumanists are divided on any number of issues. So you, you put us in a room together and you're guaranteed to get an argument. But one aspect that unites virtually all of us is this idea, this steadfast commitment to bio-libertarianism, the suggestion that people, for the most part, deserve considerable autonomy over their minds, bodies, and reproductive processes. Now, granted, conceptions of what is meant by bio-libertarianism varies considerably. I'm sure there are many transhumanists who feel that any state involvement in the development, regulation, and implementation of transhuman tech is completely unwarranted. But a number of transhumanists, including those of us who are affiliated with the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, believe that there's more to it than that. Indeed, these technologies are far too powerful to be left to unchecked market forces and the whims of individuals. Most companies and people can be trusted with such things, but there's considerable potential for abuse and misuse, things like the availability of dangerous and unproven pharmaceuticals, the irresponsible uh, these irresponsible fertility clinics, or parents who want to give their children horns and a devil's tail. Not cool. This is why the state will have to get involved. Without safety and efficacy, the bio-libertarian agenda is facile. I strongly agree that we should allow market forces to, to drive the development of transhuman tech, but state involvement will be necessary to ensure that these technologies are safe, effective, and accessible. And in addition, Governments will also need to ensure that individuals aren't harming themselves or others with these technologies. All this said, I'll restate an earlier point. Transhumanists tend to hold the bio-libertarian conviction that informed and responsible adults have the right to modify their minds and bodies as they see fit and to reproduce in a way that best meets their needs. The state has no business telling people what they should look like, 
how they should reproduce, or how their minds should work. Governments should only intervene in extreme cases, particularly when the application of these biotechnologies lead to abuse and severely diminished lives. So there needs to be the need for tolerance. But even this is tricky. What do we mean by a diminished life or self-inflicted harm? Who are we to decide which choices are permissible and which are not? The key, in my opinion, will be to remain informed and open-minded. It will be important to understand why individuals choose to modify themselves in certain ways and to accept it. We may not always agree, but we'll often need to be tolerant. And in so doing, we'll be in a better position to uphold the rights of individuals to shape their lives and experiences as they best see fit. All right, I want to end the show now. But before I do, I want to uh, just kind of complete um, a, a topic that I brought up yesterday. And that was uh, the Helsinki Group's Declaration of Rights of Cetaceans. For those who might have missed last week's show, um, basically this group put forward a, a declaration saying that cetaceans, cetaceans being uh, dolphins, uh, porpoises, and whales, that they are in fact deserving of special rights because they are persons. And I managed to find the the, the declaration, which actually came out in 2010. And here's how it goes. It's really quite interesting. And, uh, uh, of course, being on the uh, at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies Rights of Non-Human Persons program, I would actually like to see this extended to not just um, cetaceans, but to see this also extended to the great apes and elephants, at the very least. So I will now quote. So, based on the principle of the equal treatment of all persons, recognizing that scientific research gives us deeper insights into the complexities of cetacean minds, Societies and cultures, noting that the progressive development of international law manifests an entitlement to life by cetaceans, we affirm that all cetaceans as persons have the right to life, liberty, and well-being. We conclude that, number one, every individual cetacean has the right to life. Number two, no cetacean should be held in captivity or servitude, be subject to cruel treatment, or be removed from their natural environment. Number three, all cetaceans have the right to freedom of movement and residence within their natural environment. 4. No cetacean is the property of any state, corporation, human, group, or individual. 5. Cetaceans have the right to the protection of their natural environment. 6. Cetaceans have the right not to be subject to the disruption of their cultures. 7. The rights, freedoms, and norms set forth in this declaration should be protected under international and domestic law. Number 8. Cetaceans are entitled to an international order in which these rights, freedoms, and norms can be fully realized. Number nine, no state, corporation, human group, or individual should engage in any activity that undermines these rights, freedoms, and norms. And number ten, nothing in this declaration shall prevent a state from enacting stricter provisions for the protection of cetacean rights. Outstanding, that is so well articulated. And if you want to formalize your support of this Helsinki, Helsinki Declaration, you can um, just go to, uh, just Google um, the Helsinki Group Declaration of Rights for Cetaceans, or you can find the link on my website, and you can go like sign their little petition there or their support of the declaration, and you can uh, uh, support their cause that way. So very, very cool, very exciting. I think we're really getting some momentum here in this uh, uh, this idea of non-human persons and setting aside, you know, actual rights for them from a legislative perspective. It's uh, getting gaining lots of momentum, and lots of different groups are working on this right now. 
That is the end of this week's Sentient Developments episode. Just another quick reminder, I uh, mentioned this also last week, uh, if anyone would like to update um, my Wikipedia entry, the Georgia Dvorsky Wikipedia entry, as I, as, I, as I mentioned, I don't want to go in there and do it myself, that's not really cool, but it's very inaccurate at this point and out of date. And uh, for those of you who know me, that you can make the, go ahead and make the changes. For those who uh, need to know in, more information about me, uh, please just drop me an email, george at sentientdevelopments.com, and ask what it is specifically you want. And again, the concern is that um, increasingly people who are, get, are getting in touch with me, either interviewing me or writing up on me, are using the information in that Wikipedia entry, and it's very much out of date now and um, not entirely accurate. So that would be a big help for me if somebody wants to volunteer and do that. Thank you in advance. So that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, I will see you in about a week's time. And until then, have yourselves a very wonderful and productive week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.